Well, good morning. You know, there's a lot of different ways that people connect with us online, but I want to say welcome to our online Sunday morning service. We gather together every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m., both online and in person. Now, Faith on Hill is online on our Facebook page and our website. Both of those have video versions available. And if you're on our Facebook page, could I ask you to hit the like button and maybe hit the share button? Uh, we also have audio podcast feeds available, and those are on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You just have to search Faith on Hill. And if you're subscribed to those feeds, you get all of our other podcasts that we put out, including the Starting Points podcast, Talk About Anything, and the 20-Minute Bible Study. But however you connect with us, we are happy that you are here. We are glad to have you, and we look forward to spending this time together in the Gospel of Matthew, studying the life and the teachings of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you have a Bible, you can turn to the uh, 21st chapter of Matthew as we look at a couple of different teachings that are really centered around the same idea of the kingdom of heaven. You know, several years ago, I, I was speaking to a woman, and she said that she thought people should only read the Bible one chapter at a time. No more and no less. And her theory was that if you read only a few verses a day, then you would never read enough of the Bible. I agree with her, by the way. Uh, some people only seem to read a verse or two a day, and then they read about three to five paragraphs of somebody else's thoughts about those verses. And I think we need a lot more of the Word of God in our lives. But then she was adamant, in fact, militantly adamant, that a Christian should never read more than a chapter of the Word of God. And she had her reasons for this. But I said, well, if you only ever read a chapter, it'll take you decades to read the entire Bible. Decades. I, I've read the entire Bible in the last five years. Uh, in the last ten years, I've read the Bible several times. And uh, I think it was... Oh, 2014, uh, where I read the Bible in a year, and I specifically read the New Testament, I think it was in like three months. There is value in quicker reads of the Bible, because you get big picture ideas, overarching stories. There's also value in slower reads of specific books. There was a summer where I only read the third chapter of the Gospel of John. Because John chapter 3, specifically verse 16, is so quoted, is so repeated, I felt like I was just glazing over any time it was mentioned. And I just wanted to read it and read it and read it until there was some sort of breakthrough in my brain where I stopped glazing over and I started seeing again. So I think there's a place for all of this. But one of the dangers in only looking at things in terms of chapter 1 and chapter 2 and so on is that we miss that the chapters and verses were added later. Now, they were added for our benefit and our blessing, and they are incredibly helpful. And I have found they are surprisingly accurate in terms of uh, breaking down uh, divisions and, uh, you know, kind of transitional points within the books of the Bible. At the same time, chapter 20 is one of those things that there is no reason to break it up other than the length of the discourse. 
chapter tw- uh, 19, verse 30, and chapter 20, verse 1, are the same teaching. They are not separate things. Chapter 19, verse 30, But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landover who went. So Jesus immediately goes from that statement into this teaching. And if we only see things as chapter 19, now I'm done, and I'll pick it up tomorrow. Chapter 20, we miss that bridge, that connection. Everything that Jesus is going to say in chapter 20 is linked to what he taught us last week in chapter 19. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard, and he agreed to pay them a denarius for a, the day and sent them out into his vineyard. And a denarius was the usual daily wage for a day laborer. And he sent them out into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. And he told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. And he went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon, and he did the same thing. And about five in the afternoon, he went out, and still others were standing around. And he asked them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they said. Well, he said to them, You also go and work in my vineyard. And when evening came, so sundown, so you could guess this is about like, I don't know, 7 p.m. maybe. So when sundown came, uh, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. And the workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So the workers who were hired last, five in the afternoon, who worked maybe, maximum, being generous, about two hours, received a day's wages for maybe two hours of work. And it's not unreasonable to assume that they had the easiest amount of work that maybe the hardest work had already been done. The hard work had already been done, and all of the easy stuff was left for them. But they received the full day's wage. So then came those who were hired first, those who had been hired at like six in the morning at sunrise, and they expected to receive more, but each of them received a denarius. And when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour. So I'm wrong. Uh, They said, uh, you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last, the same as I give you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or have, or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Now, I'm just going to say before we get into this, that there are those who have tried to make a political or social commentary out of this teaching. 
and they have tried to say that this is Jesus' commentary on labor practices. I do not believe this is a good uh, place to base a Christian teaching theology or doctrine of labor practices from. Uh, Jesus is using a, um, a story, a parable, that would not happen in the real world. Also, if you want to take, I'm just going to say this, every teaching I have heard where somebody has tried to take this and make this sort of a, te- a Christian basis for a doctrine or a theology or a teaching on Christian belief on labor practices, uh, they've often come with a pre-established philosophical or political bent that could very easily be picked apart by other teachings of Jesus and the apostles in other parts of the Gospels and the epistles. So, I just think let's leave this alone as far as philosophy or politics go, and let's see what is it that Jesus is getting at, which is the kingdom of heaven, because that is contextually what he was talking about. Back in chapter 19, he was talking about the kingdom of heaven. He wasn't talking about our our society. He wasn't talking about culture here on the world that we're living in now. He was talking about the coming kingdom of heaven. And what he is saying is the kingdom of heaven is, I'm going to use a big word, sorry, egalitarian. Egalitarian is one of those words that means kind of what it sounds like. Everyone's equal. Egalitarian. Everyone is equal. No matter where you start, you are in, you are equal in the kingdom of heaven. No matter what you do, you are in, you are equal in the kingdom of heaven. No matter what you know, you are in, you are equal in the kingdom of heaven. Our status in the kingdom of heaven is not based on our works. It is not based on when we started. Like, I became a Christian at a fairly young age, right? There are others who did not become Christians until far later in life. That has nothing to do with our standing in the kingdom of heaven. It does not matter. I am not higher up in status because I became a Christian younger than someone who became a Christian later in life. It has no matter. It bears no importance on any of this. It doesn't matter how much you know. There are people who think, oh, well, that person has read all of the books and knows all this stuff and has gone to school and done all of these things and they're so knowledgeable. Surely they, they are really super Christians. Far from it. The kingdom of heaven is egalitarian. All of us come in not on where we've started, not on what we've done, not on what we, uh, not on what we know. It is entirely and solely based on who we know. In the parable, it was solely based on one thing. The owner of the vineyard called the workers, and it didn't matter when they were called. It mattered that they were called. It didn't matter how hard they worked. The, the vineyard owner didn't say to the foreman, make sure only the hard workers got paid or make sure that the hard workers got paid more. It just mattered that they were there and that they were doing it. It, it didn't matter uh, who they were. It just mattered that they were there. It mattered that the owner had called them. Our status, our position in the kingdom of heaven is solely connected to who we know, Jesus Christ. 
It doesn't matter when we start. It doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter what we know. It does not. Now, someone might ask the question then, Adam, if that's the case, why start early? There's two very simple answers for that. One, none of us are guaranteed our next breath. Not a single one of us is guaranteed our next breath. No one. So today is the day. Choose who you will serve today. That that is the clear message of the Scripture. You see it in the Old Testament. You see it in the New Testament. You see it proclaimed by Jesus. You see it proclaimed by the apostles. It has been proclaimed ever since by the church. Choose today who you will serve. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. Additionally, I have never met any person who became a Christian later who has said, man, I am glad that I lived in sin and rebellion for as long as I did. There, there are people who in wisdom say, I recognize that, you know what? I was on a path, I was on a journey, and God, in his wisdom, brought me to the place at the right time where I surrendered to him. But I wish it had been sooner. I wish it had been sooner. I wish I had known his peace sooner. I wish I had known his love sooner. I wish I had known his mercy sooner. I wish I had known his forgiveness sooner. It doesn't matter where you start, but why start now? Because it's better. Someone else might say, well, if it doesn't matter what I do, then why do anything? If I'm in, I'm in. Well, there's two things. First of all, uh, the Apostle James the half-brother of Jesus, uh, he wrote a letter, it's in the Bible, the book of James, and he said this, there are some who say, I have faith, you know, and, and, you know, I don't need works. And he says, hey, you show me that you have faith by works, meaning, yeah, I can say I believe, and on the inside, I'm just lying to everybody else. He's saying people that have true faith, that the evidence of that is that I live in that faith. If Jesus is real in my life, that will produce that will produce the fruit. If you're a tree, if you're a, an apple tree, if that's real, if, if you are really an apple tree, it will produce apples. I just went out last weekend uh, to an orchard out in Hood River, and I picked apples, and I picked pears. You know, you could tell the difference between an apple tree and a pear tree, right? One had apples, one had pears. If you're a pear tree, you're going to produce pears. If these things are real in your life, they will produce. Also, there is blessing. Again, remember I said I've I've never met somebody who said, man, I'm glad that I lived in sin and rebellion for as long as I did, right? I'm glad I lived in the misery of my sins for as long as I did. At the same time, there is blessing. There is blessing for following Jesus, I'm not more in the kingdom of heaven. I don't get like more heaven by, by doing more, right? Some of you might say, oh, well, that person did more for God, so the, God loves them more. I don't think that's true. But there's also blessings for following Jesus. I do believe that is true. But I'm not like a super Christian for, for, you know, doing this or that more, right? Oh, this person volunteered more for kids' church, therefore they're a super Christian. No, I just think you have more fun in your life if you're, if you're doing more with kids. I just think that's true. No matter what you, where you start, what you do, 
or even what you know. I know people who know all the correct doctrine, all the right theology, and they're just miserable people because their hearts haven't been filled with the love of God. I know people, I know people who, who know all of the big theology words, all the church history, all of the big important stuff that you think you got to know, and I don't know if they're a Christian. They know facts and knowledge. I don't know if they know Jesus. So what Jesus is trying to get at is this idea of, remember last week, Jesus was talking to Peter and the disciples, and he said, hey, this, this rich young ruler couldn't leave his wealth behind. And there are those who can't leave other things behind, but the, those who live in the kingdom will leave this world behind for something that is greater. And when we get in, no matter when you start, no matter what you do, no matter what you know, all are equal in the kingdom of heaven because we all know Jesus. That's the big idea of this teaching, of this parable. The last will be first. The first will be last. It's this totally backwards way of thinking from our perspective. But it's totally normal from the kingdom of heaven perspective. Now, verse 17, it says that Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. Remember, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Jesus has left the Galilee. He is on his way to Jerusalem to present himself as Messiah and ultimately to die on the cross and rise from the dead. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, we are going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man, which is a messianic title, will be delivered over to the chief priests, to the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and he will, uh, they will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, that's James and John, two of the disciples, came to Jesus with her sons, kneeling down and asked him a favor. What is it that you want? He asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and that the other, the left, in your kingdom. Now, again, these, this is something that would have made sense in their culture. We don't think of it this way. But to sit at the right and the left hand of the king is the greatest positions of power and prominence. You know, to, it's kind of like, who gets to stand with the president when he signs a bill into law? Who gets to stand at the podium when the president gets to announce a major policy decision, gets to announce something big or massive? She is asking that her sons be given the highest place in this new kingdom of heaven. Even though everything Jesus has been teaching them on the journey from the Galilee to Jerusalem, everything has been this refrain of the last will be first, the first will be last. If you want to be the greatest in the kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. If you want to even enter the kingdom, you must lower yourself and take the position of a little child. She comes and she asks for the greatest place. They were just told in chapter 19, Jesus said, you guys have indeed left everything to follow me. And they were told that at the renewal of all things, they would be seated on 12 thrones. 
and they would judge the people of Israel. What's not enough for you? What honor is not enough? They've just been told, 12 thrones, you got it. Apparently, that's not enough. The mother wants her sons to be the two thrones closest to Jesus. Out of all the people, her sons are guaranteed two out of the 12 top spots. I mean, when I get to heaven, at the renewal of all things, and maybe you're like this, but when I get there, you know, like, I don't know if you ever had this, but like in the, in the high school yearbook, you had your picture, and seniors got this. You had your picture, and, your, and under it was like your name and your, your senior quote. And, and if, if they had that for heaven, right, uh, your heavenly yearbook, and here's your picture, your name, and your heavenly yearbook quote, mine would probably just be just happy to be here, right? I mean, there's all of, all of human history, those who are in the kingdom of heaven and people that I look to as spiritual heroes and those who have been martyred for their faith and those who suffered greatly and those who were incredibly generous and those who prayed fervently and those who we know and those who we are going to find out about and I'm just going to be like, just happy to be here, right? And her sons are, have been told by Jesus, guaranteed, 12 of the top spots. And that's not enough for her. And maybe you think her question is like, well, you know, she's just a mom. She just wants what's best for her boys. I believe that her question is deeply out of line and deeply out of focus. Her question is deeply out of line and deeply out of focus because she has been there too. That's why she's there. It's like, like not like she just randomly showed up. The, the, the gospels make it clear, all four gospels make it clear that there were women who came and traveled and ministered alongside Jesus and the 12 disciples. And, and it is very reasonable to assume that the mother of James and John was among these women. She has been there hearing the teachings of Jesus. She has heard what we have read. Jesus is her Messiah too. Jesus wants her to follow him too. Jesus hasn't just said to the 12, but to all of his disciples, if you want to be in the kingdom of heaven, learn to be the servant of all. If you want to be in the kingdom of heaven, the last will be first. Give up your rights to gain everything. And what does she do? She comes with this request that is self-serving, self-focused, And what does Jesus say? He says, you do not know what you are asking. And he said to them, he actually bypasses the mom. I don't think he's being rude to her, but he looks at the two guys. Because nobody can go to God for us, right? I mean, we can pray to God for other people, but in the end, we deal directly with God. And so Jesus looks directly at the two young men, and he says, can you drink the cup that I am going to drink? And he's speaking of his death. And they said, we can. And Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those to whom it has been prepared for by my father. James was the first of the 12 to be martyred, killed for his faith in Jesus. 
John was the only one of the 12 not to be murdered for his faith in Jesus, but his entire life was full of suffering and hardship because of his steadfast proclamation that Jesus Christ was God in human flesh, crucified and raised from the dead three days later, king over the entire world. They did indeed drink the cup. And when the ten others heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Now, their indignance was not altruistic. Their indignance was not like, hey, how can you be so selfish? Their indignance, I'm betting, was, hey, man, I wanted that spot. Hey, why didn't I think of that first? How could you? I, I'm shocked. I'm shocked and appalled. You know, it's, I, I would imagine it's very self-serving as well. So Jesus calls all of them together because he realizes what's going on. Like these guys are very indignant, but it's it, any sort of like attempt at being like, oh, I can't believe you would be like this is very self-serving. So he calls all of them together and he says, you know that the, offic- uh, that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. He's saying, you know that the worldly people, the people of this world, the, the, what they would think of as the sinners, right? The bad people. The Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I believe that God has given and established leadership in the church. I really do believe that. I mean, you have to have leadership. You have to have somebody who makes a final decision about something. At the same time, I also believe that there is an epidemic of toxic and abusive leaders in the church in America. I believe that firmly. And I believe what I said a minute ago, that the kingdom of heaven is egalitarian and that the church is a family. And so at Faith on Hill, we make decisions together as much as we can. Now, yeah, do I, do I have a leadership role? Among other leaders, yes. But do we work together? Yes. And, and so I just say again, if you've ever been hurt by a toxic or abusive leader, boy, I, I, I apologize. And, and, and it might not even have been at, at this church. It was somewhere else, you know. I still apologize. And I recognize that that's real. But that's not how the kingdom of heaven is supposed to be. And one of the things that we're trying to be at Faith on Hill is a church that's of the kingdom of heaven and not of the church of America, which is not always the same thing. Verse 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, that is the dividing line between this dead religion and real devotion. Dead religion and real devotion. Are we here to be served or to serve other people? That's the real question. Are we all equal or do we put ourselves above people? And this is the, the really like tying everything up that's been talked about for several weeks now. Everything that's, it's all kind of linked together. All these teachings, it's been a repetitive thread. I mean, you, you don't get the notes, right? We hand out notes every Sunday morning. The notes that I preach from get handed out every Sunday morning. And, and the, the little title of this message is, oh, this question again? And the reason is fairly simple. Because we've talked about this before. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? Who, who's on top? Can you forgive this person? 
Are you here to serve or be served? All of these questions, you know, uh, should the children be allowed to come see Jesus? Like these questions have been asked multiple times in multiple ways over multiple days and weeks. And it all comes back to this central thing that Jesus lowered himself, humbled himself by even coming to earth. And then his whole life was service to the cross to save people. And this whole time, while the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest and jockeying for position and arguing about who has this and that. And then the same way in the church today, we argue about who has better doctrine or theology or practice or who's, or who's more pure in this or more right in that or more faithful in this or whatever. Outside, real people have real problems. And real people need real help. And it's interesting to me that multiple times in the Gospel of Matthew, Whenever there's an instance when the disciples specifically start to get these kind of insular, inward, self-focused moments and arguments, when they start to build up themselves and their own kingdom, it's always bookended. Go back and check. It's bookended often and almost always with a moment where somebody on the outside is hurting and needs help. It says that as Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him, and two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and they heard Jesus was going by, and they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And the crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet. But they shouted the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. And Jesus had compassion on them, and he touched their eyes, and immediately they received their sight, and they followed him. Can you imagine how little these two men cared about who sat on Jesus' right or Jesus' left? I suspect that they were like me, except that they weren't as jokey as I was about it, just happy to be there. The mother wanted position for her sons, and Jesus wanted sweat for her sons and for her. Jesus wanted her sons to work, to serve. The day is time for work, and the night is coming when nobody can work. Jesus is saying, hey, we have stuff to do. There's real people out there with real hurts, with real pain, with real needs. Now, Does it matter about doctrine? Sure. There's all kinds of reasons why these things can be important. I know people who specifically during COVID suffered because of bad doctrine. I'm not going to talk about it on, on, you know, publicly online, but if you asked me privately, I could tell you about specific instances where people, I believe, suffered emotionally and at times physically because of bad doctrine. I know people who have suffered have suffered because they, they have just, you know, they've started too late. I've known people who have suffered uh, because they have been, uh, you know, too inward focused. All these things are true. But all of these things that are going on that we just, oh my goodness, while on the outside, people are hurting. People are lost. 
You know, in a couple weeks, we're going to talk about the end of the world. Why? Because Jesus talks about it. So I'm not negating doctrine, Bible prophecy, uh, you know, uh, talking about church stuff. There's nothing wrong with any of those things because Jesus took the time to teach us about those things. As long as we remember that while we, those things are important and valuable and matter, that they are always secondary to the fact that there's a world outside that is lost and hurting and broken. And Jesus is the hope that Jesus heals broken hearts, broken minds, broken souls. And he invites people along. Jesus didn't just heal their sight. They followed him. They followed him because he could heal their sight and then they would still be lost in their sin. But they followed him. The brokenness in their hearts, that's the thing that really mattered. And Jesus was the answer for that just as he is the answer for that today and in this place and in this time. And wherever you're at, whether you're starting late, whether you know nothing, no matter where you are, what you know, what you don't know, what you've done, what you haven't done, there is still the invitation. Jesus is saying, come, follow me, work in my kingdom. And you might say, oh man, it's too late for me. Read that story again. It's never too late as long as the master is calling. And I believe that he is calling out to you right here and right now. And wherever you are, wherever you are at, you can respond to him. And if you have responded, would you let me know? Adam at faithonhill.com. I'd love to hear from you. God bless you. May the peace of Christ be with you. May the truth of God be present in your life. And may the love that comes from the Holy Spirit be felt in your world this week. Amen. All right. I've got a reason to see.